Welcome to the Coach Steve Clark Show, where he will encourage, inspire, and equip coaches, players, and parents who will in turn motivate and help others to promote the great game of tennis, foster sportsmanship, and develop greater players and people. Thanks for joining us, and here's your host, Steve Clark. Uh, welcome to the show. My guest today is from way over on the other side of the pond, from uh, Great Britain, the UK. That's Alistair Higgum. And we're going to discuss momentum in tennis. And Alistair's coaching experience spans 30 years, including being the LTA national coach for eight years, uh, Great Britain team manager for the World University Games uh, when they won seven medals at major championships. And he currently heads up university tennis in Great Britain. Uh, for the Tennis Foundation. He enjoys working in the space between practical world of coaching and the world uh, of sports science and technology, uh, creating innovative coaching practices. And his work in helping coaches and athletes to manage momentum during competition focuses on recognizing and adapting to this state of play. And Alistair has uh, presented his momentum observations to the LTA Grand Slam Conference, the ITF Worldwide Workshop, and Intercollegiate Tennis Coaches Association, and that's uh, where I uh, heard him, and the USTA uh, uh, Teachers Conference, uh, Swedish and European Tennis Associations, to name a few. So he's been around. He's been around for a long time. He's got a ton of experience, and uh, you're going to learn a lot from our conversation today, as well as I am. Uh, for all of those of you out there listening, I'd like to welcome Alster. Uh, how are you today? I'm great, thanks. Thanks very much for having me on the show. Yeah, it's good to have. Uh, I think most people like British uh, British accents. You know, it's funny. It's uh, most of the time, uh, like even on college campuses and stuff, when a guy has a British accent, everybody thinks he's automatically smarter. <laughs> well, yeah, well, we'll take that as an advantage then. Appreciate that. <laughs> there we go. Well, before we get into the book, so. Um, uh, one of the things I'm going to be discussing today, uh, folks, is uh, momentum, the hidden force in tennis. It's uh, it's a work that um, Alistair uh, published. Uh, when was that? How many years ago was that? Our first edition was in 2000. Then we published it again last year after updating, and we're, we're constantly doing research and uh, look out for another edition within, within the next year with a, a greater amount of research in sports science. Oh, good. Well, I'll have a link on on the website, uh, on the blog, as well as uh, on the links page of my website. It's uh, coachsteveclarkphd.com. You can go there and get links if you need them. Um, but one of the things I want to do maybe up front, just um, uh, give, you a, give you a chance to maybe summarize and maybe two to three key points, um, the discussion of kind of what the book hangs on. In other words, maybe a meta-narrative. So as we're talking... Um, you know, maybe these two or three key points uh, can kind of be in the people's background so they can kind of, we call it, you know, hang your uh, keys on the coat rack, you know, kind of get a, a, a larger picture. Excellent. Um, I mean, I've always been interested in the flow of the match and the journey of the match and how things move towards one player or another player. Um, so what we're talking about is concerned with the journey of the match on the way to the final score. Uh, examines the demands of the games, what's actually required to win a tennis match, and focused on helping coaches, players, and spectators understand what happens during perhaps critical periods of the match, turning points, uh, when you feel things are building for your player or perhaps slipping away from your player. So 
So it's not momentum as in mass times velocity, it's momentum as in momentum is building for one player or another. So the journey, and, and uh, in the introduction I mentioned the state of play, is that, a sim- is that the similar concept? Yeah, the state of play is uh, where you're perhaps at at any given point in the match. So uh, you could watch a match and come along fresh to it, and if you just see the score, say that score is three all in the final set, you wouldn't necessarily know the real state of play, because one player may have come back from three left down to three all, uh, or it may have been one or two, one, two all, three all. So the state of play is really how is what's the balance of the match at the moment, whereas the journey of the match may be where it's come from and potentially where it's going to. Uh, yes. Uh, in fact, a lot of times I ask people, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting, I would say probably 75% of the time, unless they've been with me on court before, I'll ask people, I say, uh, if the score is 6-0-5-0, who has the momentum? And some people say, well, clearly the person's 6 And I said, well, what if I told you the score was 6 love 40 Who has the momentum? And, uh, you know, so then it goes from there. Because I think that's what you're saying is there's the state of play. You don't quite – you look at it, there's a static score, but you don't quite know the story that's got you to that, that score. Yes, exactly, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's different ways to arrive at the same score. And uh, even if you have exactly the same score, the match may have not had the same story to the match. Well, folks, uh, those of you listening, uh, hang on because there are some points in here. I, I think Alistair's made a really practical, and I've already actually used a couple of the scenarios with some uh, players um, you know, that are going out to play after college or even during college, and there's some uh, really good uh, practical uh, tidbits here. Uh, let me ask you a quick question. I, while I was waiting, I thought about this. I said, why is it that most people don't understand momentum? Like, you know, for example, let's say the score is 40, and, and I'm talking about in tennis, but in general sports, you know, you can see it in some sports that are controlled by a clock, like basketball. You're up by six points, and all of a sudden it's pretty obvious the guy hits, you know, uh, one of the opponents hits, you know, three uh, two-pointers, and all of a sudden it's tied, and all, the coach calls timeout because there's momentum, and people see it. it, it it's, it's obvious. But in a tennis match, it's 40-30. Yeah. The ball is deep in the corner of your due side, near the sideline, and then somebody rips it down the line, and they miss it. And, and then you say, well, you should, you know, playing the score and potentially the momentum right now, depending on what happened prior, why'd you go for that shot? Well, I didn't miss it on purpose. And I go, well, actually you did. If you didn't go cross court, if you missed it cross court, at least we'd understand you understood uh, kind of how to play that high percentage. But you went down the line when it was already on the line, you're outside in the doubles alley and you went for that shot. Um, I had a friend of mine years ago who said this about one of my players. He said he must have made it one time in his life because, you know, when sometimes the, shot we, sometimes the shots we go for just don't make any sense. Why is it that the majority of the people don't understand momentum as you are going to be explaining it today? I think a lot of coaches don't talk about momentum. There's a lot, uh, if you examine how matches uh, are won and lost in the match, the things that can move most during the match are things which are happening in your head, which is psychological. And so a lot of the time, matches don't go good, then very good, great, game over. They go through patches. And how you feel, how you react, how you respond to events, patches of the match, um, that's, that's the thing which will move the performance the most. And if you think about how matches are won and lost and what are the qualities to winning the match in the match, then it's going to be in the area of decision-making, appreciation of momentum, psychological responses. 
So actually, if we looked at coaching, if we could see all the coaching sessions going in the country in the blink of an eye, my guess is that 99% of them would be talking about the shape of the forehand, the shape of the backhand, maybe some tactics, but very little would be based around actually in-match qualities. Well, we're going to jump ahead then because one of my questions is, as a coach, um, because I intentionally spend a lot of time uh, training or organizing skill sets or drills or whatever we're doing based on momentum, I have certain things I do. What do you do in terms of a percentage? Let's say you get some uh, young players you're working with or even you know some older, maybe some pros or something like that. You're working with them. What percentage of time do you actually spend, find yourself talking about it or designing things around momentum in a, in a practice session? Let's say, it's an hour, let's say it's an hour long. Depends on the age and stage of the uh, of the player, and it depends on how close we are to competition and on what we're doing during the stage. But it's always there because, in the sense that, if you are preparing somebody somebody for matches, you're going to have watched a lot of their matches, and therefore you'll understand their responses during matches, and you'll be individualizing whatever you do and creating scenarios so that they understand how to win more tennis matches. Now, of course, that's going to in- include improving the standard of the player you're working with. But once that standard is, let's not say fixed, but let's say that, that the game is formed and you are playing you know, with a college player, then perhaps 50, 60% of the time we're going to be talking about how to win the next match, things that can affect the match. There's always things to brush up on to make them better, the second serve, attacking the early ball. Uh, the, the regular things you'd expect. But I think as you get closer to a match, it becomes more focused on what's going to happen in a match. And then, of course, I'm fortunate as Great Britain captain and have been as a national coach to actually sit on the court during the matches, advise the players to change events. And then you are only talking about things which directly affect the momentum. So we need to have prepared the players to understand the things we're going to be talking about during the match and should be, of course, if they're on their own thinking about during the match. So as they get older, you talk about it more, but there's ways that you can introduce the concept very young age in terms of uh, you know, taking a score, switching it on its head, creating different scoring systems to help them understand what's possible in tennis. Right. Good. Yeah, because, for example, you could uh, maybe put a bow on this. You could, um, for example, if I was working on somebody's first serve, um, I might say, okay, so to get your first serve percentage up so they can't attack your second serve, we're going to have the score be love 30 down, and uh, you have to you have to hold. And if you don't, uh, you know, uh, whatever the, uh, you know, the, the reward or consequence is, um, you move down, you yeah. know, if you're playing up and down or something like that. Um, and then if you're uh, returning 30 love up, you have to break. Um, and then your shot selection and the way you control things uh, is is adjusted so that you guarantee that happens. So something like that, you're saying? Yeah, and I think there's other, other, other scoring systems you can put over any drills that you have. So we don't, we don't really need to make up new drills, but we can create scoring systems and ways of approaching them that mm-hmm. can begin to recreate the feeling in a match. So, for example... Um, it, the tempo of a match is important within the match. You know, are people speeding up, slowing down? So having a routine in between points that allows you to take 10 seconds between points 
and then having another one that allows you to take 15 seconds between points, another one that allows you to take 20 seconds between points. You can fit that into any drill, and the coach can say, okay, 15-second routine, 20-second routine, and you can begin by playing around with that in any drill, any competitive situation. Another one, um, very often you'll see a, uh, a shot missed, a kill, a kill, an easy ball kill, a dry volley, a kill volley, a smash, um, and if players make that shot, then it can, they can feel good, they can feel empowered, and it can be the start of momentum going for them if they respond in the right way. If they miss that shot, particularly on a big opportunity, they may be asked to start again. That's one thing the scoring system does for you, asks you to start again. Um, and momentum may even slip against them. So just taking those two concepts, the idea of starting again, uh, you can, at any point, just announce to the whole squad, start again. Because you're going to have to start again all the time in tennis. You'll start again at the start of the game and start of the set. And you may have had match point and you start again in the third set. You may have had game point, you have to play the next game. And so consequently, this idea of start again is something you can bring into any of your sessions. Okay, these next three weeks, I'm just going to announce start again at any stage. You've got to get used to it because it's as much part of match play as forehands and backhands. Right. Um, so... You know, there's things you can play around. Equally, missing that shot in that context before you start any drill, you can uh, just begin with a smash. And if they miss the smash, and, you know, it's a competitive drill, so perhaps one player throws up a lob, the other player hits the smash. If they make the smash, then they get two points for every point they score in the tie break for the next three points. If they miss the smash or lose the point, the other player gets two points for the next three points. So there's a feeling that there's a consequence on that one shot, and then that's, that's like the qualifying point for the drill. And then you start the drill that you were going to do anyway. But it just brings an element of a consequence on one shot, pressure coming onto one shot before you start the drill. Now, I call that a qualifying point because it existed separately before the drill you start. But I loved it when I went over to America. Very nicely said about our accent, but we love your language. And one of the American coaches came up and said, hey, Alistair, I love that monster point. Yeah. I thought that's just too good. <laughs> so it's now, now it's the monster point. You play a monster point before you start your drill. But if you win the monster point, you get uh, three points where it's double points. And if you lose it, you get three points where it's double points against you. Gotcha. Yeah, it's got an exponential effect. That's great. So one of the things you mentioned here, um, you mentioned about uh, potential turning points, and uh, really like your comment here. Potential per, uh, turning points are opponents' actions, your actions, or external events. And the key thing here I'd like you to maybe uh, go into depth on is they're merely potential. It's not what goes wrong, but your response to what goes wrong. I think that's really a key point. Yes, this can happen at uh, any stage of the match. It's because of the way the scoring system allows you to start at any stage. I was just watching before uh, this conversation, just watching uh, Sloane Stevens playing Caroline Garcia, and Caroline Garcia 5-1, sorry, 6-1, 5-3 up. And suddenly Sloane wins three games and starts to play the match, and suddenly it's game on. Uh, so consequently, the scoring system allows for things to be turning points because particularly when it's related to the score, because if something happens, the scoring system can you know, add to the effect. But of course, it can't be anything, um, you know, anything at all. I mean, 
it really leads us to the idea that it's not what goes wrong, or not, it's not what happens on court, it's your reaction to it that counts. In the sense that uh, you could be serving for the match and double fault, and it could be a disaster, and you could feel like the wheels were coming off your game, you go downhill mentally, you lose perhaps the tiebreak, uh, and suddenly the third set feels like a mountain to climb. Or you can have the same double fault and think, okay, I've been going for my second serve, not a problem, stay positive, and you could actually close out the tiebreak or you could close out that serve. And, you know, when I was younger, I always used to think big misses on important points were going to be a turning point. And sometimes, particularly watching Pete Sampras, it didn't seem to be a turning point. <laughs> business as usual, business as usual was resumed. Normal service was resumed very, very quickly. Right. Whereas you watch some juniors and, you know, one thing happens and suddenly it's the end of the world and, you know, they don't really uh, understand the body language goes and suddenly the body language of the opposition comes up. They can see hope. And when there's a change in both players, it can really change the momentum of the match. And it's a, bit, it's a little bit like a, a running race. I liken it to a, a running race. So if uh, we were having a race and... You know, I try. I try to sprint and you know, kick and try and get ahead of you within the race, and and yet you responded and you stayed with me. And then I go again. I try to kick away again, and you respond and stay with me. And then I kick again, and you respond and stay with me. Actually, it might be me who thinks I can't shake this guy off. And then you might your your steady approach may have worn me down, and I may fall away. Whereas if you've not been cemented tough and stayed with me when I kick. The first time, you thought, oh, he's, he's going ahead now. I can't stay with him. And you lost it and fell behind. I might think, right, I've got him. And kick on again, and then a the big gap opens up. So it's, it's similar in tennis. If somebody raises their game, like you kick in a running race, and there's no response, or in, in fact there's a negative response, somebody just accepts that the player is too good, or that it's not their day, or unlucky things have just happened and I can't control it, uh, then... That's when things can slip away. But it's any any turning point is only a potential turning point because it's really a match event. And match events happen all the time. But it's the response of well both players that really dictate whether it becomes a turning point and we see that slide away for one player and that build up for the other player or whether indeed the, the journey and the, the comp- competition really carries on. That's great. That's great. In Chapter 2, along these lines, um, you talk about the journey of the match, how it progresses. You say, and, and, and this is a really good point, you say, rarely is it, is it good, very good, great, game over. I mean, it's just not that progressive in a match. There's a lot of valleys and hilltops, ups and downs. And then you kind of set that up for saying, look, there are five stages or momentum options and uh, that's what I want to talk about for a little bit, and it's about what you were just uh, uh, giving examples, is there's Mo is totally with you, the, mo- the momentum is with you, the momentum is level or it's in the balance, the momentum is against you, and the moment- momentum is totally against you. And uh, so I wanted to take each one of those, and because um, uh, I think there'll be great examples of how these things work. The first thing is momentum is totally with you. And you say being forewarned is forearmed. And uh, maybe just talk about what people should do when the momentum is totally with you. I mean, I think it's an individual thing. So this part of the book is really a a list of options, like a menu of options. But 
generally speaking, when you know talking to players, observing players, interviewing players over many years, when momentum's with you, it feels like you can't do anything wrong. Uh, lucky things seem to happen. It feels like the court is big. It feels like it's always going to be this way. And that's when complacency uh, can happen. And, and complacency was defined by a, a, a colleague of mine, a coach of mine, as a lack of attention to detail. And I think that's a, a, a really nice way of looking at it. If you if you are fooled by the fact uh, it feels great and everything is going your way, the drop shots you play always go over. If the opposition does get to them, they, you're always already there waiting for it. Uh, winners come off your racket easily. If you're fooled into thinking it's always going to be like this in a in a truly competitive match, in a truly competitive match, and that's important, then uh, you have to be ready for a change to happen. And if you're not ready for a change to happen, if you're not guarded against that, uh, then, you know, you could be caught out and things could slide and turn around very quickly. Now, that's not to say you should be negative. That's not to say you should be fearful. Uh, this is just experience. And, and actually, when momentum's for you tactically, that may well be a good time to uh, vary your game, to uh, keep the opposition guessing, to uh, rush them a little bit, make them feel they've got a, a mountain to climb. Um, because if if momentum is for you, and we can't guarantee it's going to be for you forever, uh, well, for even very long, then it makes sense that while lucky things seem to happen, while things are going your way, whilst the, uh, the movement seems easy, the racket's flowing off the ball, that actually you fit as many points in as you can during this time, and that you don't go off for a toilet break, take your time, <laughs> right. take 25 years, argue line calls unnecessarily. Um, just go on playing the tennis, keep the tempo high, keep the points coming, and perhaps vary your game, because this gives you the best chance of maintaining momentum for longer. And of course, by keeping things running, uh, it gives the opposition, who, by definition, if momentum's really for you, usually they're feeling not so great. Uh, the longer you have between points, the longer it takes for them uh, to get their heads together. So, uh, you know, a faster tempo will uh, help in that regard too. Yeah, and I think there's a couple key practical points there is, uh, for example, and I think you give the example in the book, let's say you're up 6-0, you win the first set 6-0. A lot of people think, oh, okay, phew, uh, and then that's a letdown. Um, but the idea is people should really expect, wait a minute, okay, uh, there, uh, there's a wounded bear on the other side of the net, and if I be, you know, tell yourself, prepare yourself to say, look, you know, I'll be stunned if this isn't, you know, if this isn't really close, and they're fighting like heck, and and if they're not, at least you're prepared, mm. and then you still squish them in the second set, instead of being surprised yeah. by it. And that's right, and the scoring system, of course, gifts is going to gift your opposition an ideal chance. Uh, it goes back to the hall. Now, I did, there's hardly any sports that have a three-tiered scoring system like, like ours, where it goes points make games, games make sets, and sets make matches. Um, and then it goes back to love all, because after each set, it goes back to love all. Now, it doesn't happen in soccer. Somebody doesn't win the first half 3-0, three, three and we start again in the second half. Uh, it doesn't happen in basketball. It doesn't go back to love all, nil-nil, at the start of each uh, segment. It doesn't happen in athletics. If you're running a marathon, you know, well done, you've won the first half of the marathon, everybody back to the start line, let's start again, see who wins this bit. So it's going to offer an opposition a unique opportunity. It's going to gift wrapped love all to the person that's losing. Um, 
And, you know, when you have six love up and zero two down, you're still six two up numerically, but it can feel very different. So you have to be on your metal and you can't be fooled by the feelings of four love, five love, six love in the first set and thinking that at love all there's not going to be a change, especially in the opposition. As you say, it could be a wounded bear. It could be somebody who has been actually not trying that hard from four of five, look, six love, but it's going to hit you hard with that ideal tactics at the start of the second set. So you just have to have that experience and knowledge that if this happens, you're not the lone ranger. It's not only happening to you, it's happening to players across the country. This is something that happens in tennis matches, so you ought to be ready for it. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It's it's uh, and the flip side is, and I have a blog that I talk about this, where I say you know spin it like a politician. So for example, you give two politicians the exact same set of facts, and they're going to have different spins on it to benefit them. Well, here, if you're the person who lost the first set 6-0, based on what you're saying about the scoring and how goofy it is, how it gives people chances, you say you say to yourself, well, wait a minute, I only need to win one set, and then uh, then it's a tiebreaker for the third. Um, in a lot of matches. So, you know, you can always mm. spin it to your advantage as well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that, that match tie-break in the third uh, uh, changes things a lot as well. Uh, I mean, it's also normal, isn't it, that if you've lost the first set six love and you try something and it seems to work for a period of time, then it's not necessarily a change a lot of players will relax after losing a set and just play well for a period. And then when it comes back to it, when it gets tight again, when it gets close in the scoring again, it's almost like they accept, okay, well, I tried and it still didn't work. I lost the first set. I put in a good fight, start of the second set, but this play is too good for me. So I think it can also be just a little... You'd expect any competitor to have a little patch where they really come at you. And that's often a patch when that happens, as is the patch right at the end of the match as well. So it's it's understanding that, hey, this is tennis, this is high-level tennis, uh, things don't go good, very good, great game over. And yeah, be positive, stay positive, and expect a battle. That's great. You mentioned now, we'll move on to the second one, momentum with you. You talk about controlling, you know, you want to have your radar on. You know, you're looking for all these potential turning points, and you say controlling the potential uh, turning points against you. And the the, the great thing, I, I like what you say here, is you say uh, the potential training points you have to, uh, uh, turning points, you just have to understand, is it actually a turning point or just a blip? You know, it's it's uh, yeah. and and you don't want to let your body language give give away anything. So maybe you could comment on on those two things. A lot of the um, research into momentum is done from one person's point of view. They talk about a psychological state, and I think it's fair to say the academic community is um, still working on what momentum is and, and trying to understand it and come up with a you know, some distinct conclusions because it's, it's not straightforward. But I think one aspect of it has to include both players in tennis. It has to include, sorry, it has to include assessing both sides of the net. So it's not just a psychological state in one person. It always involves two people. Now, in assessing how you're progressing in a match, you've got to take into account looking at the opposition. And a, a colleague of mine, Keith Reynolds, very uh, wise 
you have to coach. So in, in boxing, if we were in boxing, we'd have a pretty good idea how the other guy was doing because he's very close and you're hitting him and he's hitting you. Uh, but in tennis, we're 78 feet away. And therefore, what we pick up on is body language. What we can see across to the side of the net is somebody who is uh, perhaps showing signs that wheels may be coming off or is there a change of some kind there. Uh, and equally, they'll be looking at you for the same reason to see is the signs that you know, this is this good period they're having coming to an end or I can gain the ascendancy in some way. Um, and so there's a lot of looking to see who's got the upper hand psychologically and therefore body language is very, very important because people are making, uh, you know, decisions based on how you look and how you act as well as how you play. Um, so I think, you know, that's important from the body language point of view. In terms of it being a blip, well, is tennis is going to throw interventions at you the whole time and if you just get a, a bad line call in a match that you're expecting to win then it's not really going to probably be a turning point you just brush it off it's like just a blip um, if the stakes are raised and it's a really important match the emotions are running high and that happens on an important point perhaps for all in the tie break then clearly that's a bigger test and it's uh, uh, if you like, it's more likely to have an impact as a turning point. So if you like, you can see the match events really as tests at different levels. And um, I was interested just to watch you know, my children playing on the uh, Game Boy as they grew up and playing on the computer as they grew up. And you can actually set those games to different levels, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Now, if I come on and I'm playing it like a Star Wars game, I'm really on level one, struggling, flying the plane in the wrong way, et cetera, et cetera. They go straight to level eight, straight to level nine. They want more challenge. And actually, you can, in the same way, there's almost different levels of test on a, a tennis court. Uh, and it's really at what, at what point can you can re recover, how quickly can you recover or retain what you're doing, and how many times can you keep doing that across two or three-hour match? Uh, just to explain that a little bit more in terms of the levels of test. So you might get a situation, uh, as we did in a, a match for Britain in Taiwan last year, where a player is beating a seed. He's up, uh, he's up a break already in the third set, 2-1. And the seeded player is under pressure. Everything's going well. My player, big first serve on game point to go to 3-1. But as sorry, second serve, big second serve on game point to go 3-1. As the ball goes over the net, the guy misses the return, the line, line judge on the baseline calls foot fault. So he's gone from thinking he's won the point, he's won the game, he's a 3-1 up. In the blink of an eye, foot fault, juice, loses the game to all. So in, in less than a few seconds, he's gone from believing he was 3-1 up against the seed in the World University Games in Taiwan now being back to two all. Now that's a test at a pretty high level because of the emotions, because of who he was playing, because it was very, very hot. It was 40 degrees on court. And so he came through that and won that match. Now that's a, that's a battle on the way to winning the war, which is a really significant battle. And it's much more significant than if that had happened, if he was, play, if he was seeded playing somebody uh, who, you know, that happened at two all in the first set. 
And so you can almost, if you know your players, if you know tennis, you can begin actually over the course of the season to say, hey, that was a, you know, that was a gold star test you you stood up to there and came through. And you can almost, for each player, start to, uh, at the end of the day, you know, talk about individual battles or individual tests that actually were just a blip within the overall match because of their excellent response. Whereas uh, for uh, perhaps normal players, people who respond in an average way, that would have been a turning point. So I think this idea of flips and turning points, again, always based around the response, always based around the idea that events are only ever potential turning points depending on your reaction to them. And then you can even start to define them at different levels. That's uh... And I think that the highest... The highest level I've ever seen, sorry, Steve, just to finish on, would yes, be uh, no, go ahead. Gustavo, Gustavo Kirsten at the French Open playing Magnus Norman. And he uh, yeah, he called the ball out, circled it on the clay, and he kept the net shaking hands thinking he'd won the French Open. The umpire came out of the chair, said, no, that was in, play on. So if you took, you know, that's the highest level of gold test. You think you won a grand slam, you've the net, you've called the ball out. The umpire effectively says, no, you're wrong play on and uh, you know what are you going to do in that situation because that's the high level test he went on to win the match so he, you know that that becomes you know, a massive significant event but effectively just a blip on the way to winning right no that's that's great stuff um, and in fact just a, a small example you give in the book uh, you know dealing with gamesmanship and you say you have to choose your battlefield you know you stay on the winning battlefield batting battlefield and that's tennis in other words if people are you know calling lines or if they're you know if they're you know, bending the rules or just outright cheating, you know, you got to choose your battlefield. And you talked about, you know, uh, your battlefield is doing it, stick into the game, play the tennis. And, uh, you know, that's a great example of how you treat something like that. And this is actually one of the reasons I, I, I'm in favor of, uh, just like we uh, we do in Division One tennis, you have, you just play the lets, you know, you don't replay them on a serve. Um, and it, to me, it stems from, it takes away this uh, this guessing game. I had a player, actually, who's coaching Sloan Stevens, um, and he was had match point, and he was 25 in the country in college at the time, and he serves a ball. It was ace, match point, done. And uh, the guy calls a let. Uh, so now there's this discussion. You know, obviously you can call it. They, they go to a tiebreaker. He loses mm-hmm. that tiebreaker. He loses in the third set. Yeah. So um, those it's yeah. how you manage those things, and that's, that's just such a great point. You met- yes, and, and that speaks a little bit to tactics against psychology as well. And I think that, uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about psychology, but of course, tactics are very, very important. Um, I once was uh, watching a match uh, with a, a player, Alan Mackin, playing. He went on to play Davis Cup. But I remember saying to his dad, how's your son getting on? And he said, uh, in the Scottish accent, he said, oh, he's fighting the grid battle, but it's the wrong battle. Um <laughs> And uh, and the idea was he's you know he's playing great he's mentally fantastic but he's attacking the back uh, backhand when he should be attacking the forehand and you don't actually have to be uh, if you're tactically smart you, I would say you don't have to be as mentally tough because he had to be super mentally tough to win the match going to his strength actually if he just hit it to the other side of the court then it would have been a different story and he wouldn't have had to deal with everything he dealt with on the way to winning a very tough match yeah so when that's when he said he's fighting. Great battle, but the wrong battle. That's tactics. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Yeah, 
Um, you when now moving on to the uh, momentum in the balance. Um, you mentioned um, you know if, if for example if it's even nobody quite has it. You mentioned talking about certain you know be creative take take the momentum chances. Um, then you mentioned I, the thing I really like in here. You say come back and go. It's let's say you've been behind and you get back and some people breathe a sigh of relief once they're back. Uh, and you talk about boy, you know if you if you make your way back and the momentum is now you know pretty even. There's a struggle in this one game. Um, you know, you got to keep the momentum going. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's, uh, I think most people, um, there's, there's a ton of reasons why it's easy to come back and then relax. And equally, talking about the other side of the net, uh, they would also, perhaps their worst fears have been realized, and they may start to think, oh, you know, I was 5-2 up, it's now 5 all. They may have a second wind and, and relax and say better. So I think it's it's just a very very uh, uh, winning mentality you need to build. There's no point coming back if you're then going to lose. You're immediately going to set yourself, uh, you know, the goal of winning the set and not feel like you've achieved your goal just getting back to the match. Right, right. And and you make an can excellent. I just, yeah, go ahead. Can I just loop back onto that last point? Yes. I just wanted to close that circle on what we were talking about before. Yes, go for um, it. And that was to do, to do with the uh, the battle choosing your battlefield yes. and, and the the Alan Mackin stories about uh, is fighting a wrong a great battle but the wrong battle. Well, that goes back to the when you're playing somebody who's playing gamesmanship and perhaps cheating a little bit, they're going to want to tempt you to start you know on to take you away from your tactics and take you onto a different battlefield, i.e. the argumentative, the trying to get your own back out. You know, show them gamesmanship. I'll show you. Whereas, actually, if you fight the right battle, if you fight the tactical battle, if you use the phrase that uh, the Americans use, "danced with the one that brought you," i.e., stay to the tactics that you know you're winning with, it's much more effective uh, than trying to do trying to play on the battlefield. Which, if they're they're very familiar with that battlefield, you're probably not. Then you're almost like switching surfaces and losing your tactics by going onto that. So, you know, dance with the one that brought you the right tactics um, and fight the right battle. Good. That's great advice. When we move on to the momentum is against you, and you mentioned all players' experiences, uh, so that's that's true. Um, you know, from the club player, the high school kid, uh, to the club player, to college and pros, this piece of advice here, and I'll give you the example that I think, and I've, I've used this already, um, the principle you give is sometimes in a match you could not design a better test in practice. It's hard to manufacture in, te- in practice. So sometimes just helping the player understand, and you give a great story about this in your book, if you, you couldn't design a better test, and if, you're, if it's all about process and it's a, all about getting better mentally, tactically, you know, uh, emotionally on the court, etc., this example um, is very practical. Let's say um, I were to tell you, hey, uh, you're up 6-4, you're up 5-1, you lose three straight games, it's now 5-4, stop, stop film. Okay, if if a, a week ago or a short time ago I said to you, hey, you get a chance to play in the final of a tournament, and uh, the score is six four, you won the first set five four, 
what are you going to do? And everybody's going to say, I'm going to prepare like no other, and I'm going to be warm up, loose, and ready to fire cannons and be ready to go 100%. There is no <laughs> no yeah. emotion tied to that. And that you made a great point like, well, you're in that situation now, <laughs> so let her <laughs> yeah, rip. Exactly, so, yeah. yeah, if you could maybe discuss that. I thought that was just a great, great point. I mean, it comes from rain breaks, actually, because we get a few of those over here in Britain. And, um, you know, you get a chance during a rain break to go away and think about things. You get a chance to uh, get your, gather your thoughts. And I've observed players not doing great and then rain break, and sometimes it's overnight and they've come back and they've been a different player. And all you need to do is just imagine you, you're squashing the time down. You haven't got the time at the hotel to shower, eat, discuss it with your coach and come back the next day. You need to distill all of that into the time we have now at this change of ends. Uh, and, you know, if we go back to the start of the match and say, you know, you can take this score or you can take Laval, which one are you going to choose? And they usually will say, well, I'll take 6-4-5-4, even if they've been 6-4-5-1. And as you say, great, let's go. Let's do it now. We haven't got the hotel. We haven't got the shower. Get out there. Treat it the same way. Yeah, that's just that's just a great example because we get so caught up in the emotion and et cetera, and it's like, you no, know, if you think about it, I'd I'd take those odds any day if I could be serving six four, five four, you know, and you just take take away that. Um, you mentioned about body language, and I think this is an important point. Um, when during their between point management, you know, for example, when a player, uh, you know, whether they win or lose a point, uh, I use Jim Lear's system of. Uh, PRPR, positive physical response, relaxation, preparation, ritual. But I tell people when they're doing that, part of that deal is looking over to the other side and seeing the response of the other player. And as you keep um, making a very uh, valid point, it's this is always a discussion about two people. It's not just in our heads. And uh, you make the point mm-hmm. of, look, look on the other side of the net and see the other person's body language. And I think a lot of people don't even mm-hmm. do that. They just, they're so concerned about what they're doing. If they just looked over there and saw the person falling apart, that would, that would em- embolden yeah. them. Uh, and it comes back to the turning points being either something you've done, something the opposition's done, or something a third party's done. Uh, and sometimes you don't even know why they're falling apart. It could be anything. It could be, you know, they're getting tired, of course. It could be uh, they, in the last four matches, they've served for the match and lost, and the parents are getting annoyed with them. And now they're serving for the match again, and they're not feeling good. You you, you perhaps haven't picked up on that, but it could still be there. And and sometimes, you know, a third-party thing, it might be they look over and see, you know, uh, their boyfriend or girlfriend's being chatted up by somebody they don't like. They could look <laughs> over and see the national the, the national coach has turned up because, right. you know, uh, a, a competitor they don't like. You just don't know what's going on. So you just need to sense the change. Uh, and again, you sense it as a coach. And sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm in, cha- in the chair in an international match and the opposition spectators are not that excited about their player playing well and and they either got false team spirit or perhaps they know something we don't that this player never closes out a match he always plays well or she always plays well for a few games or a set but they don't believe it's ever going to come off because they've seen it before and sometimes just by looking at the opposition as they change and that may even include the spectators it may give you a clue as to what's really going on here or what is possible here that's right that's a great point, yeah. 
even looking there. I've actually taken pictures of opposing teams and showed them to my team afterwards and said, this is what was happening during that. Learn from it. <laughs> you know, they were, uh, yeah. yeah, like you said, in disbelief. What happens if the, uh, yeah. maybe give a couple pointers if the momentum is totally against you. You're just, you feel like you're throwing the kitchen sink out there and nothing's working. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, and now, you know, what can you do? I mean, you, you, uh, you don't, first of all, you don't tactically don't dance with the one that brought you because it's not going well. Um, so you've got to change a losing game tactically. Um, but I think also the flip side of the tempo thing is very important. You need, you need time and you need to take your full amount of time between points. Uh, I would say the natural reaction to when things are going badly is to want to rush to make them go better. And so, you know, it's going worse and worse. You rush and rush to make it better. And actually, that's exactly what you should not do. Um, if it's true that when momentum's for a player, the lucky things seem to happen. You, shots seem to flow. Movement's easy. And when momentum's against you, the opposite seems to happen. Unlucky things happen. It feels like you're moving in treacle. If you drop shot, you feel like it's not going over. And even if it does, you feel like the opposition is going to get to it. Then you don't want many things to happen during that time so taking your full amount you know within the rules of the game you take your time between the points you take your maximum time allowed between because during those things against you sooner or later somebody's going to call time on the match and you will have lost so in order to make it last as long as you can uh, you need to take your time and, and change tactics and look for opportunities to turn things around uh, and sometimes both comes from you know the least expected uh, places um, occasionally in the chair I would have um, when we've been down heavily in a match I've said look there's the clock I put a, a, a watch in front of them or a clock in front of them and say it's now 10 past 5 if you're still battling at half past 5 you're going to get an extra drink tonight and if that gets to quarter to 6 and so we actually set time targets as opposed to uh, game targets and, and you'd be surprised how often that's successful uh, because you know they're now taking the time to make the time last and of course you know they often calm down find a way through and things can turn around when you do that though do you give them a like they can't go past the the rule time Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah, Twenty seconds. No, we have a, <laughs> I can see some players just so camping out in the back, could, backwards. Oh yeah, just sit at the back of the court for fifteen <laughs> minutes. No, definitely not. No, no, no. Okay. Within within the relax. The idea the idea is don't rush. That's right, the idea. Right. Don't rush. Take your time. Yeah, there's yeah. nothing. There's nothing worse. You send a couple of players out and they come back fifteen minutes. You guys done? <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a great idea. Um, you move on and you talk about the underlying current of momentum. And there's a couple points I, I, I really stood out to me, and obviously you can uh, expound on or, or uh, go a different route if you want. But I think you gave this example of if you have uh, you know two players, it's kind of understanding the compass, the, the journey of the match, and you say it's relative standard of two players. And you say, look, if my 10-10, if, in other words, if I, my, my best, I'm playing, I, if my, I know what my 10 is, and I'm playing – about as good as I can go, that's a 10, is better than your 10, then um, that means my opponent is going to have to play his 10 and I have to play 7 out of 10 or 6 out of 10. And so sometimes I think players think, you know what, man, I got to, even if that person isn't playing their best, I feel like I got to play, they're playing an imaginary standard. Um, I I remember one time, 
you know, I had a player who was, we were watching a match and I go, who are you playing? And the guy goes, and he says, what do you mean? I said, you're trying to hit every ball the best you've ever hit in your life. And I said, you don't need to against that person. And so maybe you could address this 10-10 or, uh, you know, between the two opponents. Yeah, and, and you describe it really well, Steve. And the 10 out of 10, my 10 out of 10 and your 10 out of 10 aren't necessarily the same level. That's where the idea comes from. And and you very often, there's a mis, mismatch in standards. If you play your very best and I play my very best, you if your 10 is a higher standard than my 10, you're going to win. And therefore, the underlying current of momentum, I mean, it's really that uh, you will the player who is the better player and who can progress and improve their performance during the match, it's more likely it will run with them. And you see that in uh, Grand Slam matches or you know, Grand Slam tournaments or big matches uh, where there's a seeded player who's perhaps a bit nervous uh, in the first round, say, and they're playing a player who, you know, they've got nothing to lose. They're playing seed, it's their Wimbledon match, if you like, um, and they're playing above, they're playing right up to their 10 out of 10. And then the better player is a bit nervous, you know, not quite sure, expectations are on their shoulder, is only not quite warm, maybe hasn't seen this player before, and they're maybe only playing 6 out of 10. In time, it's likely that that 6 out of 10 may become 7 or 8 out of 10, and it's likely that the 10 out of 10 from the, the, the weak player may drop to 8, 7, 6. And what, even if the better player is only playing 7 out of 10, that might be equal to the worst player's 10 out of 10. And if, particularly at the end of the set, you'll, you'll see uh, perhaps a crowd gather or interest peak uh, in a tie break when the better player may be in trouble. But as soon as that set is won and there's a relaxation, and the best player starts to go through the gears to 7, 8, 9 out of 10 out of 10, and the worst player feels like they've missed their chance, and they go from 10, 9, 7, 8, 7, then that gap is huge because their 10s are not equal. Right. Yeah, I just think that's a real plain and simple, uh, you know, kind of uh, tool for people to, to kind of gauge what's going on in a match. You also continue on and you say, look, a big part of this has to do with confidence. And, and uh, you say it's confidence is a function of your belief in the ability to do a task. And you, and you say this is why better players who've had some recent decent results, they have a greater belief in what they're doing, they have higher mental energy, and they can last longer. Whereas a lesser player, in short, they're just – they cave in too quickly. And, you know, I think confidence is um, – I think there's a, uh, I think it's overstated sometimes, but maybe you could discuss just, you know, the whole idea of confidence because it's hard to quantify. It's hard to really, I don't know how many studies have been going on about confidence uh, in, in athletics, but maybe give your insights on that. I mean, I think as we all know as coaches, we're trying to, um, it's very, very complex to be a coach and you're trying to find every, every uh, way to help your players improve, to help them get better, to help them understand the game. And, and of course, you want them to be confident uh, because it, when they're confident, it seems things go better in general. And somebody made a great point. In fact, it was Craig Tiley who made this point several years ago. And I, I believe you got Craig coming on the show shortly. But he, he, he was uh, making the point. He was very impressed with Tim Henman at one stage because Tim was going through a bad run of form 
and he went down a break and then won the set and won the match. Um, and he made the point that when players are in a bad run of form, then they, the recent history tells them it's not worth renewing your efforts and continuing to renew your efforts and respond well. Whereas when they're in a good run of form and they've won um, a run of matches, then recent history suggests it's worth them keeping trying and renewing their efforts. So they tend to renew their efforts quicker and they tend to renew them for longer. So therefore, um, you know, that as coaches, we've got to think, OK, so how can we get players confident? And I yes. think that uh, now that takes us to perhaps performance management and how do we choose the fixtures that uh, our players are going to play? How do we arrive them at the big match, the important match, within a run of form, uh, which is that perfect balance between not having just easy matches, but having enough competitive matches where, you know, I like this idea of a two-to-one in-loss ratio where you've won, if you look over the last 18 matches, if you're winning two-to-one or better, 12 out of 18, then, you know, you've got enough experience of winning, but you're not winning easily. You're being challenged because you're losing a few as well. So, And that's to do with choosing the coach and the player together, choosing the right tongs to play so they can achieve that balance so you arrive at the big match with that uh, confident enough to achieve what uh, Craig Tiley was talking about, that recent history tells you it's worth being determined and carrying on. Yeah, I, that's that's uh, that's golden. So, and, and along those lines, um, part of that is energy. It's just, I, it's such a simple word, but I think so many players don't appreciate it or and maybe coaches need to intentionally somehow let their players know it during practice or to grade it and to say look on a scale of uh, I think Ann Smith did a great job of this years ago she talked about if you have a, a 5-0 energy level that's like if I fed you a sitter in the middle of the court you swing as hard as you can you run as hard as you can you put every ounce of your energy into it a one would be you kind of walk up to the ball and you just kind of put, you know, you might make or miss it. But a 3.5 energy level is your match, high energy, total alert, uh, that type of energy. And it's it's often interesting to me how uh, inefficient players are in controlling their energy level, regardless of the match. And, you know, you talk about, especially during crucial times, not the big point, I like your use of the word crucial times, the energy level's got to be up. Um, maybe you could, you know, touch on that or even this concept of crucial times. Sure. And I really like your point that you're bringing out in practice there. And, and I think that's, you know, before we get into the crucial times, that, you know, that's, you know, that's, a, that's a great coaching point that actually raising awareness in practice and, bringing things from practice that are going to be useful in matches uh, um, is really important because you can't go into a big match and introduce things the players have never heard of. They need time, like like a technique, to have built it up over time to bring it and make sure it's solid in a match. So I think that's, you know, that's really great, those, those, uh, those ways of raising awareness uh, in practice and then bringing them into matches. So that by the time you get into the crucial points in the match, then small phrases like bring energy, come on, bring energy, let's bring energy here, is, you know, they know what you're talking about, uh, and it's not a, a new concept in the heat of the battle. Right, you can even now, give them a, 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 you can even give them a number. You could say, come on, man, 3.5, you're at, you're at, a, you're at a two right now, 3.5. Perfect, perfect. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's great match, match day coaching. Um, and I think the, um, 
the crucial times, we get a chance in you know, these matches uh, when we can coach to actually highlight them. But then, of course, the players on their own have got to recognise them on their own. And it may be different for different players, but I think a lot of it is about understanding the, the scoring system and understanding the different challenges that brings. And very often there are key junctions in the road. I mean, there's a classic key junction in men's five-set tennis because at the end of the second set, if you are one set to live up, if you win the second set, you're two sets to live up, and if you lose it, you're one set of all. So it's, it's like a, what we call a T-junction. You turn right or you turn left. You turn right to two sets to love and almost certain victory. You turn left to one set all and game on. So as that approaches, there's ways of leaving it to the last minute or realizing that's approaching and saying, hey, I want to get a break and, and quash this now so I don't have to uh, you know, scrape through and just about win that second set or perhaps even lose that second set. And so I think that comes, you know, traditionally from experience. Uh, usually in, uh, you know, in my case, uh, you know, not quite getting it in early enough, and then having to either scrape over the line at the end or play an extra 45 minutes when I didn't really want to. And then with experience, you go, hey, I'm not going to let that happen again. I'm going to quash this before it happens. So the crucial times in a match are times where you know you can gain an advantage, you can get ahead and. Uh, you know, squash something there or grab something and turn it around while perhaps there's an element of complacency. They're not always the same in every match, but clearly the scoring system cranks up the pressure as it heads towards the end of a set. And it's whether you feel you can stop it getting to a, a pressure point at the end of the set by trying to, you know, uh, win it earlier, I guess, and, and, and bring your energy earlier. That's, yeah, that's really good. Uh Related to that, when we talk about the crucial times, um, maybe I, I can kind of relate it to um, various other systems, you might say, that other coaches have talked about. Um, but you talk about you have a player can have their own ranking system. And, you know, a player, you know, people assess people. There's a pecking order in tennis. You know, Alan Fox talks about, you know, let's face it, there's a pecking order. And that affects the way we approach matches. Um, but you you give a you know a kind of a, a four rank or four tiered ranking system that people kind of assess. How does that affect the way you should go into a match or in, when you're in the middle of the match? You talk about the person being okay. This person is worse than I am. A little worse than I am. A little better and much better, etc. Yeah, I mean this came from a, a couple of things. First of all, it's uh, it's a way of trying to help people understand sport and tennis. And um, it came from, again, Keith Reynolds, who said something to me. He said, to be good at tennis when I was a younger coach, he said, to be good at tennis, you have to be comfortable with not knowing what's going to happen. And, I mean, that's just a great point in itself. You do have to be comfortable with not knowing where things are going. And But I actually went away and thought, and I thought, is that is that right? Do you always not know? what's going to happen is there sometimes where you, you really probably do know what's going to happen. Um, and that got me thinking, and I, I kind of thought that um, we came up with this really a four-star system, four different categories. And two of them are where you, you probably know what's going to happen. Um, either you're very much better than they are, or you're very much worse than they are. And that's the one-star and the four-star category. 
So the fourth star category is when they're very much better than you are. You're playing the number one seed. You're perhaps playing an older player. Absolutely nothing to lose. You can swing freely. Um, you know, and if you get a few games, you might be happy. Conversely, when you are very much better than the opposition, you're playing a one star match. Then after you get over a few nerves, it's very unlikely you're going to lose. It's kind of a procession. Very unlikely things are going to go wrong. It's just too gap to be a gap in standard. But then you've got the two star and the three star matches. And these are the matches where you don't really know what's going to happen. That it's pretty close in standard. Um, but the, there's a difference, and the difference between a two-star and a three-star is that a three-star match, you're hunting them. You're actually thinking, oh, I could take this player today. I really have been, I feel like he's improved recently. They beat me fairly close last time. I think, you know, I, I'm hunting them. This this would be a good win for me. Everybody's going to recognize this as a good win. Whereas the two-star, you don't know what's going to happen, but they're hunting you, and perhaps it's not a comfortable feeling. People perhaps are saying before the match things like, oh, you know, who are you playing? Oh, you'll beat them. No problem. Who have you got in the next round? Or, yeah, no problem. We've got this one in the bag. Yeah, you'll beat them easily. And these are the matches that, you know, perhaps there's a high expectation on on you. You are expected to win. You are uh, not necessarily going to get much credit for winning. But if you lose, then everybody's going to be going, wow, how did you lose that? Oh, well, people are going to be talking about it. And, I think that uh, in in the first instance, I usually ask people, which would you, if you've got a match tomorrow, which in order would you prefer to play? And in my experience, most people, well, I mean, perhaps listeners could think about that, that now. If you've got a match tomorrow, who do you want to play? Do you want a one-star, two-star, three-star, or a four-star? And um, in my experience, most people like the three stars the most, the one where they don't know what's going to happen, but they're aiming, they're hunting the opposition. And usually the ones they're not comfortable with are the two stars. And perhaps they're not so good at getting uh, motivated for those two-star matches. They're a bit fearful and nervous of what's going to happen. Well, actually, when you know tennis and you're a real tennis expert, the two-star matches are actually the ones where you get, should get super motivated because you can win 90% of them they are. Everybody recognizes that they can be ugly matches. Everybody recognizes that nobody likes playing them, whether it's Liverpool in soccer over here playing Stoke, uh, or whether it's uh, you know, Murray playing uh, Richard Gasquet. Uh, all the expectations on uh, Andy. It happens across the world in all sports. And therefore, the real gold dust, the gold matches, the ones to really test yourself out on, are the two-star matches, because if you win 90% of the two-star matches, you will be very often in the quarterfinals and the semifinals of tournaments at your level. Um, so therefore, people who are reading the press, people who don't know so much about tennis, perhaps parents, perhaps inexperienced players, will say, oh, two-star matches, you know, should win those. It's uh, I'm, I'm going to win those. Whereas when you know tennis, those are the ones really you value perhaps highest in some of your most difficult wins when you've felt nervous and you know, you've come through it, then those two-star matches are really the gold dust. But that's my take on it. And, you know, just by having your own system and, and putting players in different categories for yourself, then you might you might then think about how you want to approach each match. That's, uh, I don't know about the people out there. I'm sure they're really gleaning a lot from that because I think that's where most people, uh, like you said, if, if you had a choice... 
you want to play somebody that, uh, you know, that you're the one hunting, not being hunted. And uh, it, it, there's a sense of a little more relaxation about that. But uh, that's the that's the nature of tennis. It's uh, um, that, that pressure. Um, as a coach, uh, I just want to ask some uh, you know, my, my, maybe more general questions. But as a coach, with all your experience, uh, particularly at the national, international level, what have you seen that are signs of a player uh, that has what it takes to get to the next level? And that next level, I mean, let's say it's a club player getting to, you know, a really good club player or a junior getting to a, a really nice uh, regional or national level or maybe collegiately or even beyond in professional ranks. What are the common characteristics, maybe a top five list you might have of some of those characteristics? I think uh, love of the game is, you know, I mean, clearly there's certain physical attributes you need, technical attributes you need. But if we assume that, you know, as players develop, as they get to a certain age, pretty much technically they're going to be fixed. Tactically, there's not too many things you can change in your general style of play. Physically, players mature and become where they are. Uh, So actually, a lot of it comes down to mental. And very often the love of the game is something that uh, marks players who are going to be good in the future out to me. And equally, connected to that in a way, number two would be some kind of stretch in the elastic, that you feel that the the elastic isn't already stretched in this player, that there's nothing more to go. They've perhaps been a great junior, they've maxed out with their results, they're playing a game style which was successful in, in the 14s, but really they're up against it now. They're starting to lose to people who they used to beat in the under-14s and there's not much stretch in the elastic anymore. Whereas you might have a somebody who loves the game, who's always first at practice, who wants to learn, who comes back, who at the moment maybe isn't as uh, physically mature or tactically knowledgeable. Um, those are the players who tend to be in it for the longer game and therefore you know, just keep improving, even if it's slower and slower and slower and slower. Sorry, it's not slower and slower. I mean, slower than perhaps you would hope. But if they're there for 10 years, improving better each year, then, uh, you know, those those players who have stretched in the elastic, who love the game, who want to keep improving, um, I think those are the two top qualities. But then, of course, you, you have to look at the game and say, well, a big weapon is important in tennis. And whether that's a weapon of uh, you know, attrition, they have a weapon of, never giving up and always making that ball and being super quick around the court, uh, which, uh, you know, is not an under-14 type thing, but maybe more so an Andy Murray style of play, where you know, counter-puncher, able to run things down. Or the weapon may be, you know, a great big surge on his style, big game, not grown into their game yet. And this, this again, stretching the elastic in a different way. You can see they're going to grow into their game there. Um and so, you know, it has to come down to a weapon as well. I think after that, it's probably as much environmental as anything else. Are they in a position to keep playing? Are they somewhere they want to be? And uh, is there a support structure around them that they can keep uh, improving the game? Because obviously some players may wish to improve, but if there's no support structure around it and good coaching around it, then um, environmentally they're going to struggle. So I guess I, I would always go for the love of the game and stretching elastic sets. Right, that's those are those are good points. And like you said, um, the uh, you know the weapons, the potential weapons, and um, you know the environmental because it's, and that's why I think there's 
think you'd agree with this. There isn't exactly one way, you know, Wayne Bryan, you know, in his, uh, his book on raising champions, you know, he, he, he proposes certain key, uh, you know, characteristics that need to be in there. Uh, there's a, you know, maybe a, a certain, uh, uh, track they took. Um, and he suggests, and it works for a lot of people, but if you look at just some of the guys on tour for particularly that are Americans, you look at a guy like uh, John Isner. I mean, he flipped a coin between basketball and tennis. Um, you know, so you, there's just different ways, uh, to get to the end task. And I think what you're saying here is the, the really core ones are the love for the game and that stretch in the elastic, Maybe and you got to have some weapons, and then after that, it's it's kind of a mismatch. You know, it's just a little bit of maybe this. Somebody's got the, yeah. the resources. Somebody's got a couple coaches here, but they don't have the money. I think the Chilich uh, story mm-hmm. is, you know, they lived in eleven people and uh, they didn't have a lot, and they just worked hard. You know, so it it, it kind of mm-hmm. comes in different fashions. Yeah, but, yeah, couldn't agree more. Yeah, there's no. If there was one route to the top, and we all knew it, then uh, we'd all be uh, <laughs> using that the whole time. Yeah, yeah it'd be cookie cutter. What advice do you yeah. have? What do you have advice to parents? Now we're talking about the mental game here. What do you? What advice to parents, coaches, and young aspiring players regarding their the mental aspect? It could be the momentum issue. It could be other things. What advice do you have for them? on the mental aspect of the game? I think to see a psychologist as the equivalent of a physical trainer, not the equivalent of a physiotherapist. And I think psychology has still got a a bad image in that sense. And if we liken the mind to the body, um, if you were injured, you would go to over here. Um, a physiotherapist. Is that the same word as you use in the USA? Physiotherapist? Uh, sometimes they just say physio, but like uh, f- a physiologist, uh, for example, uh, uh, Mark Kovacs I had on the show, he's a you know exercise physiologist, and he, so he does preventative and strengthening, but people often go to a physiologist because they got injured. So I see what you're saying. You're saying okay, they need so- to have a sports psychologist as you would a physical trainer, not a uh, yeah. sports psychologist Bill, as somebody when you've yeah. got a problem. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's that's what I, the way I've always worked with sports psychology, and I found them to be excellent in this regard. And that may be something uh, very simple uh, as talking to the player, helping them understand, uh, you know, then these are normal feelings they're having. It may be something that involves um, just making a, a player or a coach giving them some ideas of how they can tilt their practice to be more match-like. But I think that's the first thing to not see psychologists and the mental side of the game as something which you only go to when you have a problem. It's, you know, that's kind of old thinking for me. It's the same thinking that used to exist in the 1970s where they believed that, you know, just by playing tennis, you'd be fit enough. Whereas, of course, now um, you could put a, take a, a tennis shirt off any of the players, put them in an athletic running kit, and you wouldn't really be able to tell the difference between the Olympic athletes and the tennis players because they're all supreme athletes, because they're all using techniques in the gym to build strength for the tennis. For tennis. And that's the same with the mental side of things. You can build strength mentally, you know, if you use it in a tennis match. You do, it's not something you've either got or you haven't got. So that would be the first point. Um, and then I think, um, you know, from then on, it's, it's really individualized. And I think that. Um, in describing the momentum, um, really describing, I guess, the, from the demands of the game. And then we've talked a lot about how you recover uh, from 
the events of the match and the turning points and your responses to them. Sometimes it's just this old psychology will help you find your individual way of recovering the best way that you find. Some players may be um, getting more uh, animated, and for some players that may be calming down more. And it, that depends on the person. That's where sports psychologists can really help somebody understand themselves and uh, understand what their best response is. Because Federer um, is, you know, a different style of player and a different uh, you know, calmness that he brings to his matches, say that McEnroe brought, and yet both of them <laughs> tremendously you know, work with old classic players. Right, right. Well, along those lines, um, maybe the last question I have as we're running out of time here, it says, what are your thoughts, you know, because there's a, there's a debate on, you know, uh, just even and then for me, especially with some uh, peers, et cetera, we talk about this, you know, almost every sport we have coaching because you learn uh, the closer the correction or the instruction is to the event, the better we learn. So when we're playing soccer and basketball, a coach pulls a guy off the court or a gal off the court and says, hey, you need to do X, Y, Z, and then they send him back in. That's where your highest rate of learning is. In tennis, the way it's set up is you can't talk to anybody till an hour and a half later. And then you go, you know what? The first shot you did, and uh, in, in, it was 2-1, and you hit a forehand. They don't remember half the stuff. So... You know, the only time you're left of doing that is during practice when there isn't the pressure, there isn't uh, these issues we've been talking about. Are you, do you ever see uh, coaching in the juniors or in other aspects? Because we can do it in college and it's, you know, it's kind of getting in there in the pros a bit. Do you see where it's advantageous uh, to, um, you know, coach, uh, do on court coaching for kids, or do you just see as uh, it should stay the way it is? Oh, I mean, I, I'm a, I, I believe in teaching in all, all situations, um, and I think that I think for co- the, the discussion around coaching on the tour is a different discussion. But I think for coaching in the juniors, uh, you can encourage a player to think for themselves in a match. So it doesn't need to be um, if you're in the chair at the change event in the juniors. You can actually ask them questions about you know, raise their awareness of different aspects of the match as opposed to just telling them. And that would be obviously a teaching method. And and I would be for that. And in fact, I uh, uh, quite a, a few years ago now pioneered a tournament here in Britain, which was called the Player Plus competition. It was for 13 and unders. And it, um, it, was an, it became an international competition and had some... You know, Andy Murray won it, and Jamie Murray played in it, Tommy Robredo played, Mark Lopez played in it, Jarko Niedemann played in it. And, you know, they all had, the idea was player plus meant player plus coach. The coach came with the player and sat in the chair at the change events, and it was uh, usually, it was a national tournament, 36 boys, 36 girls. And the reason I chose 13 and under is because all the tournaments were 12 and under or 14 and under. And we decided to have this tournament that uh, it was an ideal time to learn and to talk about what happens in the match. Just at 13, when emotions are kicking in and there's biological changes so they can begin, but their game's well enough to develop to begin to understand uh, some of the issues about match play. So I'm very much for uh, teaching in matches as juniors, and uh, I, I think when, but then as they mature and get to the old age, you know, I think there's a big discussion about whether it's better on the tour spectator sport if it's just somebody trying to work it out for themselves as opposed to the coaches controlling the, the game as they do in other sports. Oh, that's just that's great stuff, great stuff. If anybody uh, listening in um, wants to uh, contact or uh, possibly get your book, Elster, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try and have it uh, on my website, actually, where they can kind of uh, 
either buy directly or right. maybe go to your link. What's your What's your website that maybe people can go to? So it's www.momentuminsport.com. Okay. Momentuminsport.com. Great. And there's, uh, yeah, so there's, con- there's the Kindle version of the book there and also contacts there. And uh, yeah, I'd love to hear from anybody. It's, uh, it's great to discuss with coaches, uh, you know, about match play. That's great. Well, you've been listening to the Coach Steve Clark PhD show um, with UK national coach uh, Alistair Igham regarding momentum. And be sure you like, share uh, the podcast and my website with your friends at CoachSteveClarkPhD.com. You'll find blogs there, podcasts, resources, some video discussion and more, including uh, Wilson Rackets uh, and, and other Wilson products. Um, I'd like to thank Aero Concrete for their, uh, for their excellent service in the Spokane area. Also, welcome your comments and questions, and you can reach me at steve at coachsteveclarkphd.com. Alistair, it's been a blast having you. Um, like all, you know, like one of the things you mentioned about uh, players is they need to have um, this this desire to learn. And for me, one of the biggest things is lifelong learning. I try and instill that in um, you know people that mm-hmm. I coach and teach. And um, this is a prime example. You know, one of the reasons I do the show is is to learn, um, but then to help encourage. Um, and educate players, parents, and coaches. And uh, you've done a great job. I really appreciate your input. And uh, uh, just thanks Thank so you. much for coming on the show. That's been great, Steve. Uh, you know, time's flown by. I love discussing tennis with you. And uh, it's been great to share some ideas. Uh, thanks so much for inviting me. Yeah, no problem. And before he takes off, I've got one quote of the day each time I put him on the end of the podcast. And this one isn't necessarily a quote, though. I, it's, I call it Be There Now. And this stems back from uh, multiple things, but when I was um, uh, training in martial arts, I had a, a studio or two. But my, my instructor at the time, years ago, when I was working on a, one of my uh, degrees um, in black belt, was um, he would tell people, be there now, which meant there was a lot of aspiring to, to you know, let's say attain a black belt or to attain something. And it's more like aspiring to do then the thing to which you aspire to be. In other words, you get there because you do the things, you act the way, you think the way that people there that you want to be do now. So it's not perfected, it's a process, but do not make the process an excuse not to be there now. So if you can name numerous similar characteristics um, you know, of a champion or people you emulate on the tennis court, then do that now. Don't say, hey, I want to be a great pro someday, but then don't act like it now. So the thought I want to leave you with is be there now. So thanks again, Alistair. Appreciate it, and I'm sure I'll see you out in the tennis world somewhere. Great. Thanks, Steve. Much appreciate it. Thanks a lot. And as I say at the end of each podcast, let her rip. <laughs>